The last couple of months, God has, um, his path for me, his, his opening of doors has put me in a handful of different cultures, different countries, different cultures. One of my trips started flying to Los Angeles, and boy, is that a different culture than what I'm used to. Been in Mexico, I've been at the border of U.S. and Mexico, and that that atmosphere, that culture. I've been in the, the Middle East and Doha. I've been in a couple of countries in Africa. The language is different. The diet is different. Even the clothing is a little bit different. Transportation is certainly different. The weather is different. But there's a common thread. In all the different cultures that I've been exposed to, people are desperately looking for hope. People are desperately looking for hope. They're asking with their, with their behavior, well, they're asking with their words, where is the hope? They're revealing with their behavior that they've given up on the possibility of hope, and so they're looking elsewhere. They're turning to other things. And it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter the color of your skin or the diet, the food that you eat, the language you does None of that matters. It's, we have this in common. People are struggling to find hope. And I found myself asking this question, where did the hope go? What happened? More importantly, I find myself asking, how do we get it back? How do we bring hope back into the human experience? We talk about at Crossroads, hope lives here. And then we say hope lives here. Let's be real. More often than not, when we come into this space on Sunday mornings or we show up at one of the other times that we come together, or maybe Maluli talked about waking up this morning, more often than not, when we wake up in the morning, our first thought is not gratitude, it's where has the hope and how do I get it back? How do we get hope back into the human experience? Do we believe that God is good? Do we believe that he's sovereign? Do we believe that we are the the fruit of his creation? I didn't get here by chance over billions of years, but I live, I breathe, I exist because God created all this. And when he created it, he said it was good. So how come, more often than not, I walk through my day asking, where is the hope? How do I get it back? How do I get it back into my life, to our lives? We come to the end of our study this morning in Nehemiah, and I want to invite you in your Bible or in your phone. There is a good use for your phone on Sunday mornings in church. Open up your Bible on your phone. You can even post on Facebook if you're inviting somebody to watch the live stream. Other than that, put it away. But open it up if your Bible's on there. I love that, that technology. Or open up your Bible and look with me at Nehemiah chapter 13. We come to the conclusion of our series in this book, and we have entitled it Restoring Hope. So it was, it was very near and dear to my heart as I traveled over the last couple of months, and I had lots of time. The time change messes with you. So in the middle of the night, I had lots of time to talk to God, and I had lots of time on airplanes, and I had... 15, 16 hours straight, several times in a van, tucked in the back of a van trying to get somewhere. I had lots of time to think about restoring hope and 
as I'm traveling and interacting with people and training pastors in the refugee camps and doing a marriage conference and teaching a bunch of students in Mexico about the, the intertestamental period and what is God doing, and it's always the same question in my mind and in my heart. How do we restore hope? How do we get hope back? This series, Restoring Hope, it started, and it doesn't start with Nehemiah, this journey, but we picked it up there, where God is rebuilding the, the wall, right? He's rebuilding Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. People have begun to come back, but there's much to do, and God is beginning to rebuild, and he's using people, and we, we've looked at that. We've looked at how he uses leadership. We looked at how he uses people coming together. Last week, we saw the sacrifice that God is asking of us if we're going to work together with him and see hope restored. And as we come to this last chapter, I want us to ask this question again of ourselves and of our marriages and of our families and of our church family and even our community and our place in this community. How do we bring hope back into the human experience. Because where I was going a minute ago, this is where I want to end up. If I believe God is good and I believe that I'm the result of his creation, that his plans for me are good, then I know he intends hope to be part of my experience in this life, in the circumstances that I'm in. Is it possible for a Christian in California to have hope? Good, thank you. I love our family. We have another family in Tennessee and other parts of the world now, but, or the country. But does God have hope in store for those who call on his name and live out their faith in California? In this economy? In our health challenges? In our financial challenges? In our relational challenges? In the midst of all the brokenness, is God in his goodness want hope to be a part of our journey with him? And we say yes. I do too. And so we come to the end of this book that describes God restoring hope to his people, and it begins in verse 1 of chapter 13. Nehemiah is telling the story. He's recording it by the Holy Spirit so that we'd have it today. And he starts this way. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. Let me pause. Have we seen this description before in the last couple of weeks? Have we? Over and over. I see a few shaking heads. The word of God is opened up, the people gather, and the word of God is opened up, and hopefully by now, we've caught on that when this is described, that the word of God is being read, amazing things are about to happen. Change is about to happen. Hope is about to be restored. So on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they... The Ammonites, the Moabites, had not met the Israelites with food and water when they came out of Egypt and were moving towards Canaan. They didn't meet them. Now, were they related to them? They were. Let me give you a little. I was going to share it later. I'll just share it now. The Ammonites and the Moabites didn't have a great origin story. Another uh, superhero reference. <laughs> they didn't have a great origin story. You remember Lot and his two daughters? Do you remember? And the two boys that were born from that incest were Ammon and Moab. And so are they related to Abraham and God's people? Yeah, they are. And when the Israelites were coming out of 400 years of slavery and moving towards Canaan, they didn't come help them. But instead what they did is they hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. 
And then Nehemiah, in parentheses, he remembers, he helps us remember, our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. Do you remember? That's what it's, he's saying to his readers. Do you remember how God did that? And when the people heard this law, they, re, they heard that Ammonites and Moabites were not to be admitted into the gathering, the assembly of God's people. They excluded from Israel all those who were of foreign descent. Sounds really ugly to our ears in the 21st century, doesn't, doesn't it? Just be honest, it does. Wait, hold on. Stay with it. They excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Nehemiah said, before that happened, that moment, Eliashib, the priest, he's actually the high priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. And he had become closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember, anybody remember that name? The friend of God? Oh, no, I'm sorry, that's Abraham. Tobiah is the enemy of God. He has been working with Sanballat and Geshem and others from day one to stop anything from happening that God wanted to happen. And the high priest is now connected to him. He's associated, it means a connection. And he, the priest, had given Tobiah a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and the temple articles. And also the tithes of grain used to be in that room. And new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites. All the gifts that God's people were to bring to pay for me, Matt, Nate, Jeff, pay for the electricity, pay for, so that the worship of God could happen and the leaders of worship could be taken care of. The Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers. Matt talked about the gatekeepers. The Levites were responsible for the security of the city and the, and the temple, as well as the contributions for the priests, how they got paid. And while all this was happening, I wasn't in Jerusalem. Because in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, Nehemiah, had returned to the king. I had gone back to the king. And sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he says, this is when I learned about what was going on. Here is when I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah, a room in the courts of the house of God. You come to church, don't come next week because we'll be on Saturday. But in two weeks you come and you show up and you walk in and the chairs are gone, the sound system's gone, Nate, the instruments are all gone, and instead there's some guy living in here. And you come and go, wait a minute, I, th I thought we were to come worship. Yeah, no, 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 just. And he's living, in the, he's living in this space that was dedicated to these other things. And I learned about this and how Eliashib had done what he had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased. And I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out, the, out of the room. You ever watch a romantic comedy where, you know, the stuff's thrown out the window up the upstairs? You know what I'm talking about? All the clothes, the TV, everything. Can you picture Nehemiah? I have this. I just, it makes me laugh. I picture this guy just hucking all of Tobiah's stuff out of, out of the room. None of this belongs in here. I threw it out of the house of God. And I gave orders to purify those rooms and I put back into them the equipment. The sound system came back. The instruments came back. In their case, all the articles for the worship of God, all that belonged in the temple to bring gifts and offerings and worship to God. And I brought back the grain offerings and the incense began to be burned again, that sweet fragrance. But I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. They weren't being paid and that they, all, they had all gone back 
the Levites and the singers responsible for the service to, to sing, the worship team. They went back to their own fields. Why did they go back to their own fields? Anybody want to know, guess why? They're hungry and they have families and they're not being paid. The house of God is neglected. No one's bringing their gifts and offerings because of what the leaders have done, the leader has done. And so they've returned to their fields. They've gone back to provide for their family and Nehemiah says, I rebuke them. And I ask them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and I stationed them at their post. And listen, all Judah began to bring the tithes and grain and new wine and oil into the storerooms. Don't miss that moment. When Nehemiah rebuked the leaders and he made changes, the response of the people was to come back to worship God. That is significant. I, with the deepest conviction I know how to express, that is significant to the heart of God. And I know that's true because that was Jesus' primary beef, if we use that phrase, with the Pharisees, that they got in the way of people worshiping God. It's always been his heart. And he doesn't have a lot of, of patience and mercy with those who get in the way of people worshiping him. And as soon as these restrictions, these obstacles are removed, the people of God begin to bring the tithes of grain. When sin is dealt with, when the obstacles are removed, that's the response. And so Nehemiah says, I put Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. And I put them in charge. And they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Oh God, remember me for this. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. Here's how God has convicted me as I've studied this. And I have a couple of things that I want to point out that I hope will will burn to our own hearts as we move forward in the place and time that he's called us to live at our faith. And the first one is this. We commit to obey his commands and God restores hope. Or I can say it the other way. Hope is restored, it's brought back, it's, it's rebirthed when we commit to obey God's commands. I know that's not a thank you, you and me together. Almost left me up here all by myself, but my friend did not. Some of the others should have joined us. Thank you. Okay, now it's just guilt, amen, so let's, we'll, we'll move on. Hope is reborn when we as individuals, when we as a family, when we in our marriages with our kids and our grandkids, when we as a, as a church family community, as we as the people of God, when we commit ourselves to obey his commands, no matter how tar- hard they are or difficult or challenging, that's when God moves and he restores hope. That's when the, people, when the people of God saw what Nehemiah was doing, that he confronted the leaders. And just a side note, there's a real lesson here for leaders. Whether you're a leader in the church, or you're a leader in your home, which men you are, if you're a leader in the community, if you're a leader in your job, wherever it is that God's called you to lead for him. Everywhere I went the last couple of months around the face of this earth, the suffering and the challenges and the hardship were almost every single time connected to failed leadership. Almost every time. There's a challenge to us as leaders. The leaders failed the people of God. Nehemiah comes back and he does the hard thing. 
He challenges, he rebukes, he corrects the leaders. And as he rebukes the leaders for their disobedience, do you see it? They read the word of God and the word of God said, hey, these people can't be in here and you can't have associations with these people. And yet their primary leader, the high priest, had, had disobeyed that. And the message of Nehemiah here is like, we need to obey God's word, period. It says it right there. This is what we're to do. Let's do it. You're supposed to be bringing all these gifts and supporting the worship of God so the Levites and the singers and the priests can provide for their family and they can lead you in worship. Let's do it. And as soon as he does that, the people of God begin to have hope again. Can you imagine with me, if you will, there was no desire to come worship God when Tobiah was living in the temple and, and everything was a mess. And whatever your gifts came, they never made it to the priest. Would you keep giving to this church if you found out that we weren't, we weren't being cared for, Matt and Jeff and Nate and I? Would you have a problem if you showed up and you're like, it's really hot in here. Yeah, we don't pay the electrical bill. It really stinks in here. Yeah, we don't, we don't pay to have it cleaned anymore. You, you, you tracking with me? You'd go somewhere else. You would. You'd go find, like, there's no worship happening there. You would be discouraged, I hope. Not that I, I don't hope that you're discouraged, but you get you. <laughs> when Nehemiah says, we need to obey God's word, and he begins to stir that to happen in the leaders, the people of God have hope, and they come back, and they're giving, and they're worshiping, and they're serving. Let me talk to leaders but not just to leaders, but I want to make sure leaders, including myself, hear this, but I'm, I think this is, I know this is for all of us. We can never compromise our commitment to obey God. Leaders, it starts with us. If God speaks, to, it, it reveals it in his word, we need to obey it. Do we always understand it? No. Do I always like it? No. Maybe Eliashib thought, well, this is kind of the, the least path of resistance. This guy's been our enemy from the beginning. Maybe if I just kind of give him a place, he'll make life easier for me, make my leadership easier. We can never become comfortable with sin. We can never become friends with the world. We can never sacrifice obedience for expedience. We can never minimize the importance of God's word and him saying, Kurt, this is who I am. This is who you are to me. Live this way as my child, as my son. I know some of you are thinking, and I want to go back to it because you're stuck on that, these Ammonites and Moabites. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about the Moabites and the Ammonites? Why is God so upset that he would say, he'll say for the tenth, to the 10th generation, no Ammonite or Moabite is to be a part of the assembly? And he says it in, in Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly even down to the 10th generation, verse 4. They did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And instead they hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on you. Did the curse work? No, because God turned it to a blessing. So what did Balaam do next? Do you remember? He said, do you see the Ammonites and the Moabites around you? See how pretty their women are, men? Wouldn't they make good daughters-in-law? Do you see their worship? You see their Man, their music is way more exciting than your music. And what they do in worship, oh. You know they do. They have fun in worship with each other, men and women. You, you tracking with me without me being, getting graphic? When you go to worship, you get to 
Oh, didn't that look good? And guess what the people of God did? They went, they married, they joined, they brought in daughters for their sons. They brought the worship of these other gods into their homes. They went to worship those gods. And does God have a problem with that? He does. He has a problem with us worshiping other gods, worshiping anyone else, anything else other than him, because we're no longer living in obedience. This is a big deal to God. It's not ethnicity. It's not race. It's not the color of their skin. God's not saying, I'm prejudiced against those people. What God is saying is anyone, this world, this culture around you, that will lead you to worship somebody else other than me have nothing to do with that. Don't put that big flat piece of glass on your wall and turn it on and invite the world to come in and tell you what your values are and what's important to you. You know what I'm talking about? Or that Spotify, that music you're listening to, or the books that you're reading, or where you go in your culture, where you invest your time and your talent and your treasure. Hope is only reborn when we commit to obey his commands. It's restored, it's renewed, it's reborn in my obedience. I love you guys. I feel we're a family. There's no hope in disobedience. There is no hope in going our own way. There is no hope in this world. There's no hope in this culture. There's no hope in the economy. There's no hope in education. There's no hope in, in, the, in the healthcare system. There's no hope in, 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 in security and in, in so-called safety. There's no hope in comfort. You, you, fought, you with me? I just spent several weeks where I had no comfort. And I had joy most of the time. And I come home and I sleep in a comfortable bed and I turn on the air conditioner and I drink you know, cold water. And I think, yeah, there's no hope there. I love those things. I'm thankful for those things. But that's not where hope is. It's only found in obedience. I believe that's the message of Nehemiah as we come to close this study. Hope is born in our commitment to obey him. Whatever God's asking you and me to do from his word, do it, and you'll find hope. He goes on, in those days, he goes on, verse 15, in those days I saw men in Judah treading wine, wine presses on the Sabbath, they're bringing in grain, and they're loading it onto donkeys, and together with the wine and the grapes and the figs and all the kinds of foods. Hey, there's a supermarket happening. They're bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them. I said, guys, stop selling food. Men, women, stop selling food on that day on the Sabbath. Men from Tyre, they were a coastal people, and they lived in Jerusalem. They were the brokers. They were bringing in fish. They were bringing in fish on the Sabbath, all kinds of merchandise, and they're selling this stuff in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. That's not insignificant. They're selling stuff on the Sabbath to the people of God. And I rebuked the leaders, the nobles of Judah, and I said, what? What in the world? What is this wicked thing you're doing? You're desecrating the Sabbath day. I don't get, what's going on? Didn't your forefather, didn't, haven't we done this before? Haven't we been here before, guys? We've done this before. So that our God brought all this calamity. Take a look around. 
Remember the, the, the exile to Babylon? Remember the destruction of the temple and the wall and everything was destroyed and then we've been coming back and he's given us another chance, his grace, and the, the temple's rebuilt and the wall's rebuilt. Take a look around. What does that remind you of? It should make you think that this has all happened before and all the destruction that we've experienced, the loss of life, all of it happened because our forefathers did the same thing that we're doing now. And God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city and now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. So when the evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath began, Nehemiah ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over, sundown on Saturday night. I stationed some of my own men at the gates. Now guys, make sure no load can be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice after I did this, the merchants and the sellers, all kinds of Goods, they spent the night outside Jerusalem. This is so funny to me. And in Africa, all the, almost all of the, the life happens on the street. The selling of food and goods and everything is right there on the street. And I just kept thinking, of the, you know, don't come sell on the Sabbath. Okay. Okay, the Sabbath begins, you know, technically sundown on Friday night. But, you know, we're going to start selling stuff Saturday morning as soon as the... And so let's, let's get there Friday night and let's camp outside the city and let's, let's just all be there. So he's got to open the door on... You know, he sees all of us. You know, come on, we'll just, we'll just force the guys at the gate. Let us in. Once or twice they did that, but I warned him. I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. So help me. I will smack you upside your head. Do we have a picture of what this could look like in Jesus? We do, don't we? It involved a whip and some throwing tables around. I'll lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. I commanded the Levites to purify themselves. I commanded them to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't let anybody in on the Sabbath to do business. And then he says, God, would you remember me for this also? Would you remember me and show mercy to me according to your great love? In essence, Nehemiah is standing up against the entire culture, isn't he? He's pushing back against the culture that had developed. And said, God, would you remember me? Would you show me love and mercy because of your love? Because this is hard. Maybe he felt like he was the only one. But here's the second conviction that came to me in studying this. Hope is restored when I choose, when we choose to live for God's glory instead of my own gain. When I choose to live for the glory of God. You see, the Sabbath is a big deal, and maybe we're asking that. Why is God, it's okay, he was really big on these people not being in the worship because of what, okay, I get it. But this Sabbath thing, why can't they buy food on Saturday? Why can't they do their business? Why, why is it such a big deal to God that his people would stop and intentionally not do what they normally do? It's because what did he ask them to do in place of that? Do you remember? What are you doing right now? You thinking about lunch? You checking your phone? Or are you here worshiping God? Are you worshiping God when we sing? Are you worshiping God when we come to the Lord's table? Are you worshiping God right now and listening for his voice instead of mine? Get past what I sound like. Get past what you may disagree with me or you don't like what I look like or sound like. Get past that and listen for the voice of God so that you can worship him. You can give him whatever he's asking of you right now. He might be asking you to start obeying him in an area. 
He, he might now be going, boy, that's me. I kind of, what comes first in my life is my finances, taking care of my family. What's most important to me is that I, my business succeeds. What's most important to me is that I have money, that I'm rich, that I have all that I want. And I know God says on the Sabbath word, instead we're to worship him. But man, I gotta tell you, I sell so much stuff on Sunday. I was in Chicago a few years ago, and you know this already to be true about Chick-fil-A. And I'm not saying go to Chick-fil-A or endorsing it. But I'm in downtown Chicago, high rises everywhere, restaurants, and it's on a Sunday. People are all over the place. People are drinking, having a good time, eating. They're spending money all over that city. And in the bottom of one of these high rises was this glass front, and it was all dark. It was a Chick-fil-A. And when I got home, I went on the internet, and I was looking up stuff. And 60%, average, 60% of a restaurant's business happens on Sunday. Does it not make sense to be open on Sunday if you're going to be successful in a restaurant? Yes, humanly speaking. So maybe God is speaking to us. He's saying, you know, there's something in front of my glory. There's something that comes before in your life, something you put ahead of worshiping me and spending time with me, hearing from me. Yeah, but God, how am I going to? What God will do, he's done it in my life every single time that I've been willing to do this. You put him first. You worship him more than anything else. And he will restore hope to your heart. And he will provide for you. He will take care of you. He may not give you what you want or what you've latched onto as important for your own gain. But he will give you what you need. He will take care of you. He will love you. He will come, as Jesus said, and make his home in you. And you will have fellowship with God. And you'll worship him like you've never worshipped him before. Hope is restored when I choose to live for God's glory, not my own gain. I have to choose. We have to choose. What do we want or what does God want? Does that make sense? Is that a fair question? It's a hard one. But is that fair? Is it legitimate for you and me? If we've confessed the name of Jesus Christ, to go home this afternoon and say, okay, am I really pursuing what I want or am I pursuing what God wants? Am I moving and choosing in the flesh or in the spirit? Am I putting the physical before the spiritual? Am I putting the temporal before the eternal? Jesus told us in Matthew 6, the truth is this, you cannot serve two masters. And I know for a fact, because I've been in this setting, in a local church setting for almost 40 years as, as a leader, and there's always been people in this church family that are struggling with this. In fact, they're, they, they would not say they're struggling. They're saying, oh, I got it figured out. I know how to serve two masters. I know how to get what I want and, and, and serve this and also serve Jesus. And do you know what we do when we live by that truth? We call Jesus a liar. I call him a liar. If I go, hey, I got this, God. I can, I, can, I can put this first. I can compartmentalize my life. Guys, you with me? I read this week, women's minds is just this big maze and mesh of stuff, and men, we can't, or ladies, we don't understand it. I'm sorry, where's my wife? I just don't get how your mind works. Guys, I get. Hey, ooh, you're sitting right next to her, brother. Scoot over one. Men... I got this compartment, I got this compartment, I got work, I got my, my internal thought life, I've got my church life, I've got my relationship. With, are you with me, guys? According to Jesus, 
We're going to be unsuccessful if that's how we live. It's not going to happen. We're not going to successfully serve two masters. We're going to choose one and we're going to serve it. We choose to live for God's glory or we choose to live for our gain. Okay. You ready to move on? You guys listen a little bit faster. Look at verse 23. Okay, last section of Nehemiah. Moreover, as well, something else is going on. In those days, I saw this. I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites. I'm not sure what's what's they're called, but we're going to call them that. Listen to this. They married these these, um, women from other cultures. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. Half of their children only spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of these other peoples, and they did not know how to speak the language of Judah. So the word of the book of Moses is opened up, and the people gathered. And earlier in Nehemiah, the kids were there. The kids are right now in different places. And guess what? We're opening up the word of God, and we're reading the word of God. And they, they opened up the book of Moses, and they taught it. And their children, many of the children, couldn't understand They couldn't understand the word of God. We would never do something like this to our children, right? I spent some days in, a, in an orphanage. I'm sorry. Give me, give me, give me two more minutes on the thing. <laughs> I, 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 I can go back there so easily and I, I can see these children. They have no papers. They have no identity. They've fled from... South Sudan, some thought their parents would be there. They're in this orphanage, and at 16, they're given a 10 by 10 meter of land. Build yourself a, a mud hut and a thatched roof and, and grow some corn. Why are they there? They're there because of sin and brokenness, but don't miss it. They're there because of failed leadership. They're there because the leaders of their own country can't figure out how to, how to, to lead that portion of the planet that they've been called to lead and to care for. And one of the consequences are children. The adults are making choices that, that cause the children to suffer. And God's heart is not only broken, but he's angry that people are raising their kids not to know Jehovah, not to know who God is. They can't even understand the word of God. And Nehemiah says, I rebuke them. Listen, leaders, Jeff, Matt, Nate, and elders, here's our, here's our role model. You ready? See, he's already shaking his head. I called curses down on them. And I beat some of them. And I pulled out their hair. Come here, man. I want to demonstrate. (laughs) He's bigger than me. He'd end up pulling what I have left. And I can't afford to lose it. I I verbally said, what are you doing? And, And God, may he just punish you for what you're doing. And he physically, I mean, he's doing a demonstration here. And he grabbed hair. And I made them take an oath in God's name. And I said, here's the oath. You are not to give your daughters in marriage to these, other, the, to these sons, nor are you to take their daughters for your sons. Don't bring this culture into your families, your community, and for yourselves. Because was it not? Hasn't this happened before? Haven't we done this before? It's because of marriages like these that King Solomon of Israel sinned. And among All the nations, there was no one like King Solomon. Here's the oxymoron. He was the smartest man that ever lived. And yet, he took a lot of wives into his his bed, into his family, into his home. 
among the many nations, even though there was no one like them. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all of Israel. And yet he was led into sin by these foreign wives. I know we don't marry multiple wives, or at least I hope there's none. There isn't parts where I was at. But let me pick on TV again. I've been guilty of on that little screen on my wall bringing in culture into my life, into my thinking, into my values, into what's important to me. You with me? Must we hear now that we as well are doing all this terrible wickedness and we're being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women, bringing this into our community. One of the sons of Jehoi, the son, the son, the grandson of Elishab, the high priest, was son-in-law to who? You remember that name? The enemy of God and his people. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priestly office. They have defiled the covenant of the priesthood. What's the covenant of the priesthood? The covenant of the priesthood and the Levites is that if we're in leadership, if we're a priest or a Levite, we represent God to people and we, we create the, the path for people to worship God. We, we facilitate standing up here and preaching, leading in worship, reporting on the, on the, the leading the missions team. Our leaders, we have a responsibility to facilitate coming together and worshiping God. You have a responsibility before God, and he says, you've defiled it. You've defiled it. And I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign, anything that didn't belong in the worship of God, and I gave them duties, each to his own task, and I made provision for contributions of wood at designated times for the sacrifices and for the first fruits. I made sure everything was there so that they could lead God's people into worship. And he says, remember me. Remember me with favor. Here's my third conviction for me. And I pray that it will be for us as well. Hope is restored when we give God, when we give God undivided devotion. There's no room for any other devotion in my heart. I love my wife. There's devotion there. Hear me well. And I have family, and I have this church family. I have, I have circles that I am to love and to be Christ-like in and to, and to be committed to, the sacrifice that we spoke of last week. But at the top of that list is God. My devotion, my first love, what's most important to me is him. And when that happens, God restores hope. Hope lives here, hope lives here. I'm moving quick, I promise. Hope is restored when we choose devotion to God over everything and everyone else. Some of you here this morning, you got something in front of God. How do you know that? Because I know people, I know me. You came in this morning with something on your heart and mind that was more important than your love for God. Identify it. Own it, confess it, and replace it with him. Hope is restored when light penetrates the darkness. Hope is restored when Satan's persistent endeavors to contaminate the gospel, the message of God, is defeated. And it's defeated, he's defeated by God's people giving their first devotion to God. That's how hope is restored. I want to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to... 
I will talk a little bit about communion, and we're going to prepare for the Lord's table. But as they're coming, can you hear this? You can write this down. You can commit it to memory. But here's the question. What does God want from us as his people today? How do we bring hope back to the human experience? Number one, make obedience the soul of your walk with God. I can tell you flat out, I know what God wants from you. Oh, does he want more money? Does he want me to stop doing something? Does he want me to... Maybe. You know what God wants from you and me right now? Right now? He wants obedience. He wants that to be the the bedrock, the foundation, the soul of my walk with God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Who said that? Who said that? Jesus said it. Make it the soul of your walk with God. Number two, stop chasing after this world. You are not going to find hope in this world. Stop chasing after this world and get on mission. You know what the mission is? It's on the back wall as you're walking out this morning. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You fill it in. Get on mission. Church, we have, we have lost hope because our eyes have been fixated on this world, on government, on our circumstances, and we've been, we've been frantically trying to make our culture and our circumstances what we want it to be. And even if we could, we would not find hope there. Sorry. We're only going to find hope in God, not this world. And we're only going to find joy in what, what God has for us if we're on mission. Finally, I believe God is calling us to love him first. He's calling us to love him most. And he's calling us to love him with all that we have in our every aspect of who we are and what we, what we have. I believe that's his voice, not mine, because that's his voice to me. God wants us to love him first, love him most, love him with all that we have. In fact, he said it, right? And he didn't make it up. He quoted it from Deuteronomy. He already spoke it through the Spirit to Moses, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Love him with everything that you have. And if we live that way, if we get up tomorrow morning, Maluli, and we our feet hit the floor and we live tomorrow loving God more than anything else, you're going to have hope. Hope will be restored in you, and by God's grace and mercy, it'll be restored. It'll begin to be restored in the people around you, your wife, your husband, your kids, your community. We're going we're gonna to respond, and I've taken up more time. Let's please do both songs. I'll you can write emails to me when we get out late and after, okay? Send, don't send them to Nate, send them to me. But we need to respond. We need an opportunity to hear the voice of God. And so we're gonna sing. We have some songs that are gonna help us articulate how we need to respond to who God is. And there are boxes on the side. Part of some of, for some, the worship is bringing God your gift. For those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, he invites you to his table to remember and during these next few minutes as we begin to sing and you're prepared your heart is ready to humbly and honestly come to God and tell him thank you for what he has done for you and I and you might just pray as you're up there or as you're taking the elements God restore your hope to me help me to identify where I need to obey you help me to acknowledge that I've put other things before you help me, I just confess to you this morning that I don't love you the most I love blank 
I want blank in my life. And I confess that I want to love you most. And remember what he did. A couple of weeks ago, we were challenged to fill out a, a card. To, we were challenged to read God's word. Pastor Jeff challenged us to read his word and to pray for 14 days because as a church family, we're, we're asking some important questions about our future and what it looks like for us to be faithful to him here in this community. I don't know how many of you have taken that challenge that you've been praying or you've been asking God to open up your eyes to see what he wants and what he's doing. Part of it was that you would write a note and in your bulletin this morning, if you haven't done that, there's a, there's a note card in there for you. And the, the, the ask was, as you pray and as you read, just share with your leaders, share with your, your elders, your shepherds, under shepherds, what God is showing you and how he's moving in you and what he's doing in your life. And if you haven't done that, you can do that this morning. The elders are meeting today. We want to look at these cards. We want to hear how God is working in you because we want to be Nehemiah. We want to be those kinds of leaders. We want to be that kind of community of God, people of God. We truly want hope to live here and hope to live here, to be a voice of hope to this community. So I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you, if you didn't do it, you have a second chance. Because we're going to talk about this in 14 days, in two weeks. And so if you haven't done it, start today. Commit to praying and reading God's word today over the next two weeks. And take that card. If you don't have something to write on it today, don't just fill it out. If you've got something to write, fill it out and turn it in. There's a basket on the Connect booth. But maybe the challenge for you is to, over the next two weeks to be praying and spending time in God's word and asking God to show you how do we become people of hope. Amen. Thank you for your time.